You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God's holy word to the Gospel of John. John chapter 14. Our focus today will be on John 14, 15 through 24. I'll be reading verses 15 through 31. John chapter 14, beginning with verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, You will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, we unworthy sinners come in the name of Christ, knowing you have sent the promised Holy Spirit, empowering your church, abiding and dwelling with us, but in the name of Christ who intercedes for us, we plead that your Spirit 
would work freshly today, comforting your saints, convicting sinners to the glory of Him who, in whose name we pray. Amen. Beginning with John 13, we find ourselves in the upper room on the eve of Jesus' betrayal and arrest. They've gathered for the Passover. Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. He's dismissed Judas. And then it is as though He pours out His heart to the disciples. Or rather, we might say, He pours out His heart for the disciples. We refer to this portion of Scripture that runs from well, it's introduced by chapter 13. It runs chapters 14 through 16, really. And, and I would even include chapter 17, where we have Jesus' high priestly prayer, and we see all the same kind of themes involved there as being part of this, this unit. And we refer to it as the upper room discourse. And we too, as Christ's disciples, if you're truly as you find yourself in this upper room, and it's as though Jesus is taking the broken bread of His body and dipping it in the blood of the new covenant and giving us these sweet gospel morsels for us to partake of. There's an unmatched unit, uh, intimacy and communion that not only they, but we since we have in this upper room. And I'd encourage you as we go through these chapters in the weeks ahead, to take time yourself to read the Upper Room Discourse as a whole. Chapters 13 through 17. Read them again and again. And I think you'll begin to see not only the themes that are developed and sustained without, but also more and more how they relate to one another. And so as you read this discourse, don't simply be content to know what Jesus is saying, but think to yourself, why is He saying it where and when He's saying it? What's the relationship between these truths? For instance, the meaning of verses 15 and 16 is pretty plain, just in isolation. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's pretty clear. And then the promise of the, the comforter, the, the, the helper, the another helper in verse 16. We see this, we understand this. But why are these two truths placed next to one another? Is this just something like Jesus' last will and testament where He's sharing something of His wishes and bequeathing certain gifts towards us and, and there's not a, a reason necessarily for the order, it's just the way things are listed? Or is there a logic for why we go from if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper? These two themes recur throughout our passage this morning. They are related. They dominate this whole passage, and there's an interchange between one and the other. But before we ask how they're connected to one another, let's ask how they're connected to what Jesus has been saying. Why does Jesus begin to speak of loving Him and obeying His commandments and the promise of the Holy Spirit at all at this point? How does this relate to what we've seen in verses 1 through 14. In verses 10 and 11, Jesus spoke of His works. And then in verse 12, He goes on to speak of the works they will do. So the first thing I want you to see is the link between the works that they are to do 
and obeying His commandments. Surprisingly, Jesus says they will do greater works than He does. This is not in competition to Jesus. The reason they will do these greater works, He tells them in verse 12, is because He is going to the Father. So it's because Jesus is at the right hand of the Father that they do these greater works. And as the discourse as a whole makes plain to you in the rest of the New Testament, the reason they do these greater works is because they are the works of the ascended Christ in His people. They're not doing greater works in competition to Jesus. Their works are His works in them. And the works that Jesus did, we've seen throughout John, are works given to Him by His Father that testify to who He is. His works bear witness to who He is. And now their works will bear witness to who Jesus is. Jesus received His works from the Father, verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father The Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So by the works, they were to understand, the Father is in Christ, Christ is in the Father, the works demonstrate this, and this is the way Jesus spoke of it in John 5, 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So Jesus does the works that He does in obedience to the Father. At the end of this chapter, Jesus will say, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. The works which we are sent out into the world to do that testify of Christ are... The obeying of His commandments. They're synonymous. In John 17, Jesus will pray, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus is sent out into the world, and in the power of the Spirit, in obedience to the Father, He obeys the Father and demonstrates His love for the Father in His mission. What you're seeing here is that we are sent out by Christ and by the power of the Spirit. We testify to Christ, obeying His commands, and thereby demonstrate our love to Christ. So that's something of the connection of why it is we go from, let not your hearts be troubled, and everything that He says in 1 through 14, building up to that point where He says, my works, your works, now... If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Let's look at the words themselves. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That that truth is radical for two reasons. For what it says about love and for what it says about Jesus. It's a radical statement for what it says about love. It's counter to the world's concept of love. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Piper writes, 
Jesus shatters many common notions. For example, one notion is that commandments and love don't mix. You don't command someone you love. You don't tend to love someone who commands. Commanding connotes military hierarchy, not relationships of love. We tend to think that commanding restricts winsomeness and willingness both ways. And this is often true. But Jesus shatters any absolute disassociation of commandments and love. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Thinking in terms of commandments and obedience did not stop Jesus from enjoying the love of his Father, and he expects that our thinking of him as one who commands will not jeopardize our love relationship with him either. There are many earthly relationships. Whenever you're dealing with one who has authority, where obedience to commands is essential to demonstrating love. And you want to see how crazy it gets whenever you want to try to ignore that. Just look at children-parent relationships in our culture that try to ignore that truth and where it goes. What's shocking here though That's just shocking enough for modern ears. But what's so stunning here is the absoluteness of it. No exceptions. If you love, you will keep my commandments. There are instances with an earthly authority where love will disobey. Here, no exceptions. And you can begin to sense the reason underlying that In the word, my. If you keep my commandments. That's radical. Now we've gotten into what this says about Jesus. Moses gave commands, but he didn't say, my commandments. They were the Lord's. Jesus obeyed his father's commands as a man... He gives men commands as God. There are no exceptions. If you love Jesus, you don't improvise. Jesus doesn't care for your spontaneity. He doesn't want your creativity. It doesn't doesn't matter how original your sacrifice is. Just obey. And this is liberating. He's not calling for you to be something. You simply need to be faithful to His commands. How crushing it is to a child when they think they need to perform and become something. Our Heavenly Father doesn't put that weight on His children. He just simply asks that we obey His good word. Note the way... We get at the authority Jesus assumes here in this way. Jesus said all the law hangs on these two commands. Love God with all. Love your neighbor as yourself. Earlier in this room, Jesus said a new commandment I give to you. See the same authority. My commandments I give. That you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. 1334. And now he's telling them. 
obey His commandments to love one another. And they do that as an expression of loving Him. He's calling for them to love Him by loving one another. He's calling for them to obey the two great commandments upon which all the law hangs. He's calling for them to love God, Him, and love one another. Commandments are never contrary to love. Never. All expressions of love, even whenever you want to love someone who's not an authority over you or under you, commandments are essential to every expression of love. When you want to love someone, Jesus defines what love looks like. And if it's not that, it's not love. doesn't matter how you feel about it, it is not definitionally love. Sinclair Ferguson is spot on when he says, love is what the law commands, and the commands are what love fulfills. You cannot truly love either man or God except in obedience to the commands of God. But not only are the commands essential to true love, love is essential to true obedience to God's commands. Love under lies and is the motive behind all true worshipful obedience. No matter how great the outward action is, no love, no obedience. Paul said, 1 Corinthians 13, if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Jesus commands, and you're seeing it right here, He commands the heart as well as the hands. He's Lord of all. He demands all. He's worthy of all. He demands heart as well as hands, and hands without heart are disobedient hands. This is the kind of obedience Jesus is after. Psalm 40 and verse 8. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Now, at this point, I think it's critical you understand that love is not a result of keeping commandments. I kept a commandment, and then as if love is just what's there. No, love is underlying you're keeping the commandments, and underlying that love is a work of God. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's the source of this love. We love because he first loved us. Jeremiah 31, 33 speaks of Yahweh writing his law in the new covenant on our hearts. So with that, I think you can, you, you can begin to see, oh, it's not unnatural to go from, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, to promising the Holy Spirit. You see Spirit writing the law on the heart, you begin to, is that why these two are there? You're not certain, but all you know this at this point, I just want you to see, that's not an unnatural change of subject. But is that why the subject has changed? 
That's another matter. Come to the second theme, verse 16. I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper, or as I said, I will maintain throughout this portion of John, the translation, comforter, another comforter. Before we look at how the two themes we have in our passage relate, first we're answering how do they relate to what Jesus has said. So now we come to the second theme, how does it relate to what Jesus has been saying in 1 through 14? I see two connections at least. First, Jesus has been speaking again and again of going to his Father. 1333, 14.2 and 3, 14.6, 14.12. And it's from this position of having returned to his Father, it's from that position, verse 16, that he asks the Father for this comforter. That's the first connection. Second, Jesus here is comforting them. 14.1, let not your hearts be troubled. He's telling them He's going to leave them, but He's comforting them now, promising another comforter. So let's take up each of these more fully. First, the Spirit is given because of Christ's heavenly intercession. I will ask the Father and He will give you another comforter. Because of Jesus' finished work, He sits at the Father's right hand and He asks the Father so that the Father gives the Holy Spirit another comforter. The Spirit is the gift of the Father and the purchase of the Son. He's the gift of the Father and the purchase of the Son. The reason the Son can ask for the Holy Spirit on their behalf is because of the work He's accomplished. The Spirit is is the Son's purchase, the Father's gift. And this helps you understand why sometimes you read that the Father sends the Spirit. Sometimes you read that the Son sends the Spirit. Sometimes it'll be right in the same passage that the Father and the Son send the Spirit. John 15, 26. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. John 17, or 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. So the Father sends the Spirit in the name of the Son. And the Son sends the Spirit from the Father. He is the gift of the Father, the purchase of the Son. And He's given to them as, again, as the, New King, as the King James has it, New King James has it, as another comforter. The word that you have for, as helper or comforter is a rich word. That's why sometimes you see it even just brought directly over into the Greek. Like, we give up. We'll just bring it directly over. And you'll hear the paraclete. Often you'll have it also translated as advocate or counselor. It does have a legal connotation to it in some context, most, which is why it's really the preferred understanding by many today. But even so, it's too strict to say that this is like a lawyer. Uh, In in the ancient uh, law court, you would defend yourself. You would be your own lawyer, but you would bring in testimony, and you would bring in an advocate, someone who says, I've known this person all their life. They'd be a witness to who you are. And so that's the sense of it, that it's be someone who would counsel you through that time and, and be an advocate for you. 
But even so, it can mean those things. Someone who encourages you, strengthens you, counsels you, intercedes for you. I don't think the legal connotation is really the one that dominates this whole context of the upper room discourse. I think the idea Jesus is wanting to communicate is that of a comforter. Central to this upper room discourse is Jesus comforting His disciples, telling them that His absence is gospel. I'm leaving you and it's good news. He just says in in part of the extended passage that we read, if you knew what I'm speaking about, you would rejoice. John 14, 1, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in also in me. 14.27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. John 16.1, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. 14, or 16, 4 through 6, I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you ask, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. 1633, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So again and again throughout this discourse, Jesus is comforting And strengthening his disciples. And he's telling them, I will leave you. But I will not leave you without another comforter. Jesus is comforting them. And central to the comfort he's offering them is another comforter. The comfort Jesus is mainly comforting them with throughout this upper room discourse is a comfort that will come to them in this Another comforter. There are two words in the Greek language for another. We don't have, we have, we have to use connotations in English language to really get at this, but in the, in the Greek language it's plain. There is one word for another of a different kind. So in Galatians 1.6, whenever Paul speaks about another gospel, which is not a gospel, he says another of a different kind. It's not the same. Then there's another of the same kind. That's the word Jesus uses here. Another comforter. R.C. Sproul gets at the significance of it well. I used to play a game with my seminary students. I would ask them in the New Testament, who is the paraclete? They would all raise their hands. Oh, we know that. That's easy. The paraclete is the Holy Spirit. They said that because we sometimes refer to the Holy Spirit in theology as the paraclete. But my question required a somewhat technical response. I'd say that's right and it's not right. It's true that the Holy Spirit is a paraclete. But Jesus did not call him the paraclete. He called the Spirit another paraclete. And for there to be another paraclete, there must be a prior paraclete. So who is the paraclete? 1 John 2.1 clearly gives us the answer. It says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate. We have an paraclete with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 
Christ is our advocate, our comforter, our counselor, and our helper. For this reason, Jesus spoke of the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, as another helper. The Holy Spirit is promised as a gift from the Father to the disciples to continue this comforting work Christ is doing in them. And this is for the disciples alone. The world cannot receive the Spirit of truth because they don't receive Him who is the truth. The world cannot receive Him because it neither sees Him or knows Him. They don't see or know the Holy Spirit. This is demonstrated they don't see and know Christ. They don't receive the Spirit of truth because they reject He who has just proclaimed that He is the way, the truth, and the life. This world is blind to Jesus, it's blind to the Holy Spirit. It's odd though, isn't it, verse 17, to speak of not seeing the Spirit? They don't see the Spirit. John 3, Jesus likened the Spirit's work to the blowing of the wind. Here Jesus says they don't see the Spirit clearly. This is referring to a spiritual perception and a spiritual knowledge of the Spirit. And that is critical for what Jesus is going to say in just a second. So keep that in your mind. But the disciples, as they receive the Spirit, they see and they know the Spirit dwells with them and in them. The world doesn't see or know because the Spirit doesn't dwell with them or in them. And understanding this, we can see why it is that Jesus then says to them, I will not leave you as orphans. But then He goes on to say, I will come to you. What does Jesus mean, I will come to you? And three options have been put on the table. First, some argue this is a reference to Jesus' appearances to them after the resurrection. That's one option. Others go back to to verse 3, where Jesus said, I will come again. And there it clearly has reference to uh, His return at the resurrection. And I think that option is completely off the table because Jesus is saying that the world won't see Him. Yet a little while, the world will see Me no more, but you will see Me, verse 19. So when He says, I will come to you, the world won't see Me, they will see Him. I don't think this can add any reference to the resurrection because there the living and the dead will appear before Christ. I don't think that's the case. Third option is that some believe this to be primarily or even exclusively a spiritual perception of Christ, of a spiritual seeing of Christ. Which is it? Notice this. You have the same world disciples division that you did earlier. So verse 16, you have this another helper. He is with them forever. But the world cannot receive Him. The world doesn't see or know the Spirit. So now we come to Jesus. Yet a little while, little while, the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Same world disciples division. And you have the same seeing, knowing being mentioned. The world will see me no more, but you will see me. Verse 20, in that day... This really gives you the answer. You will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in 
you. How is it that they will see and know Christ on that day? It is a spiritual perception. It's one with what he's been talking about. It's by the Spirit that they will see and know. I think this is confirmed with what we find in between there. Because I live, you also will live. Why is it that Christ's resurrection means our own? It's because by the Spirit, the living Christ indwells us so that His resurrection is ours. We are not put into a long-distance union with Christ. By the Spirit, we are put into union with Christ so that Christ Himself indwells us. We live because Christ lives. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Romans 8, 9 through 11, Paul connects these dots. He shows how the Spirit's indwelling is Christ's indwelling. And what this means for life now and life in the bodily resurrection. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God, you should think the Father, dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So He's the Spirit of the Father, He's the Spirit of the Son. Listen to what He says next. But if Christ is in you, if you have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you, you have the Christ of the Spirit dwelling in you. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Whenever Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you, He wasn't promising a short return visit. I'm going to leave you. Let me give you this comfort. I'll come again, but then I'll leave again. He gives the Holy Spirit forever, and in giving the Holy Spirit forever, He gives Himself forever to be with us, to know Him and to see Him. By the Comforter, He remains our comfort. This is the comfort Jesus is giving. I will give you another Comforter, and by that another Comforter, I give you the comfort of myself. I will not leave you. I will come to you. The comforter the comfort comforts us with is Christ. There is no other comfort. And He doesn't give us the comfort of Christ long distance. He brings Christ near. Saints, this is your comfort, Jesus. And this is the another comforter, the Spirit. Jesus lives, you have the Spirit, you have Christ Himself, you have the Father. Because the Son is not physically present, but is at the right hand of the Father, having accomplished His work, because of this, you have the Trinity. You have God. He is with you. Those are our two themes. Loving God keeping His commandments, the giving of another comforter, 
Seeing how they're related to what Jesus has said, how are they related to one another? Are they related? How, they, how are they related? Be patient. Jesus will build up to that answer in verses 21 through 24. But notice that Jesus, at this point, just notice this. He returns to the first theme. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Do these relate? Well, whenever he sandwiches the promise of another comforter with the same truth, I think we should take that as strong assurance that we need to be going forward thinking they got to relate. How do they relate? The first thing we see, Jesus puts forth this same kind of test, if you will. A test to run, not to become a disciple. If I pass this test, I'm a disciple. I love Jesus. It's not the kind of test that you work to pass. It's the kind of test you run to determine, to identify. Who are those who love Jesus? And the answer is, those who keep His commandments. And then you have truths concerning the person who this test identifies. Those who love Jesus, the Father loves them. And Jesus loves them. And He manifests Himself to them. Now you start to see the connection. Manifest meaning see, know. So, if you love me, you keep my commandments. And those who love me, the Father loves them, and I love them, and I manifest myself to them. Judas Iscariot, excuse me, Judas, not Iscariot. You wonder how many times he had to make that qualification. (laughs) Judas, not Iscariot, he sees something of the connection. He's putting the things together. Verse 22. Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Remember this whole world disciples. All that distinction was in regards to Jesus' promise of another comforter. Now he's speaking about keeping his commands. And Judah says, these things are related. How is it you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? He hears manifest. And he's thinking, see and know Christ. Jesus will manifest himself to them and not to the world by what he says in verse, Jesus answers in verses 23 through 24. And at first it might not seem like an answer. How? So Judas understands that that is the case. He wants to know how. And Jesus says, if anyone loves me, seems like he's saying the same thing, and he is. But the answer is right there. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my Father's word, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. You see the same division. Those who love the Father and the Son, verse 20, and those who are loved by the Father and the Son, in verse 23. Verse 24, those who do not love Jesus... They do not keep His words, and thus in not keeping Jesus' words, they're not keeping the Father's words. Because those aren't just Jesus' words, they're given to Him by His Father. 
Same division. Those who love and those who do not. And for those who love and keep Jesus' words, they have this promise. The Father and the Son will make their home with Him. Verse 23. How is it that the Spirit will manifest Himself? How is it, excuse me, that the Son will manifest Himself to the disciples? How is it that the disciples will see and know Christ? And the answer is, by the indwelling Spirit. The giving of the Holy Spirit means more Jesus, not less. That's the comfort Jesus is giving them throughout this upper room discourse. I am leaving you, and it's for your advantage that I am because it means more of me for you, not less. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Now, as, the, as Christ is manifesting Himself to His disciples, this means not only seeing more of Christ, but it also then would include understanding Christ's commandments as part of Christ being manifest to them. So verse 26 of this chapter and the next make this clear. The Spirit manifests Christ and thus He gives the apostles the word of Christ. A word concerning Christ and Christ's words, His commands. So 1426. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. What would that include? His commandments. Now, 1526. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. So the Holy Spirit teaches us Christ, and as He's teaching us Christ, we're hearing Christ in His commands. Let me go one more place in the upper room discourse that I think will draw this together. 15, 9, and 10. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. So how does one not only love Christ, but abide in Christ's love? By keeping His commandments. And as you keep His commandments, abiding in His love, He manifests Himself to you more fully. And as He manifests Himself to you more fully, you love Him more. And you demonstrate that you love Him more because as He's manifesting Himself and you understand His commands more clearly, you obey those commands. And as you obey those commands, you're abiding in His love. Do you see the spiral here? What should be the result of this truth? First, you should take stock of yourself. Do you love Jesus? And I'm asking with that, is there not simply some kind of emotion, nor are there just actions, but are there hearts and hands united 
as an expression of love. And I'm not asking if you do this perfectly. None of us will in this life. I'm asking simply if you have something of the experience of the Apostle Paul as he wrote in Romans 7. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see another I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Yes, sin remains, but is there this delight in God's law? And though sometimes you do what you don't want to do, and even whenever you're doing what you should, you find your heart isn't fully in it, but yet there's something in there that says, I want to obey my Lord. There's a love for His commands. There's an understanding that His commands are where you abide in His love. That His commands are good and holy and righteous and just. And you understand, I don't need to keep those because He loves me. I keep them because He loves me. I don't need to, I don't need to keep those for Him to love me. I keep them because He loves me. And if that's true, run that test right now. See, running this test doesn't make you a disciple. That's not how this test works. This test shows you whether or not you are a disciple. Run that test. And if you find that kind of faith and repentance and love, you are Christ's. It's not the root of His love for you. This is the fruit of His love for you. Second, if you are Christ. This is an enlivening truth, an inflaming truth, an emboldening truth. You have the Spirit, and by the Spirit, you have the Son, you have the Father. The spiritual life with which you obey Jesus is life in the Son by the Spirit. Because Jesus lives, you live. The Son who obeyed His Father lives in you. And your obedience to the Son is the fruit of His obedience to the Father. The Son who obeyed the Father indwells you, and now your obedience to the Son and the Father is the fruit of that obedience. If you are Christ... As you reflect on these truths that we have in this passage, I think there should be greater zeal to obey and walk in Christ's ways, to obey His commands, to abide in His love, to enjoy communion with your triune God. To enter into that spiral of, of because of what God has started, you love and you, you want to keep His commands. And as you do, He manifests Himself to you. And as He manifests Himself to you, you love Him more. And as you love Him more, you obey His commands. And as you obey His commands, you abide in His love. If you're Christ, as you look at this, there should be a profound gratitude to the Father and the Son for the gift and purchase of the Holy Spirit. And finally, if you're not Christ, if you sense you are outside of this upper room, that these sweet gospel morsels of His broken bread dipped in the blood covenant, if you sense that you, you don't have a share in those right now, 
I want you to know that even this portion of John that is dealing with the disciples' faith is still written for that ultimate purpose of the gospel. These things are written so that you might believe. Even this is written so that you might believe. So perhaps you find yourself, I'm outside this room and you, you want to be in. You find yourself wanting the Father and the Son to make their home with you by the Spirit. You know the Spirit isn't dwelling within you, but you long for Him to. You know you've broken Christ's commands. And you sense that deserves judgment, and and you sense it does justly. And part of the reason why you're owning up to that in this moment is because I've broken them, and I don't love Him, but there's a, there's a kind of love that's, that's there yet because you want to love Him. If you're longing for the Spirit. Christ is becoming attractive to you if all that's true in this moment. And I believe the Spirit of Christ is drawing you. And we would plead with you. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified for sinners risen from the grave, seated at the right hand of the Father, and you will be saved. And you will have life in the Son by the Spirit. And if you've done that today, if you've, something, something of this is happening, I, one of the elders, we'd love to talk with you. But right now, let's look to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Father, Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit purchased by your Son. The guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. How certain can we be that we will be fully conformed to the image of Christ and all things will be made new? What a down payment you've made. You've already given us yourself. Made your home within us. Oh, what comfort there is here, Father. Forgive us when we are troubled and when we doubt. And bring us back to this place in awe that you've given us another comforter. And Father, stir in us now by your Spirit a fresh zeal a love for Christ that hears His commands and receives them with joy, delighting in them, abiding in the love of the Son, in Your love, seeing Christ more clearly, loving Him more, obeying Him more, especially as we understand we are sent out into this world to bear witness to Christ. And the Christ we bear witness to is one we see. Is one we know. Father, as we go out and we tell this world of Him who we see and we know, this world that doesn't see and know Him, by the power of Your Spirit, Father, we would ask that they would see and know. Magnify Your name. The saving of sinners. And the obedience of Your children. We plead this would be so by the Spirit in the name of your Son. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. 
Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.